Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast for those who want a little meat after their milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back. As we've said previously, every seventh episode, we will hold, in honor of Eastern thinking, we will hold a very special question and answer episode. And so, Robert from Peoria asks, What is the significance of the Jewish Jubilee year, and does it have any meaning for Christians today? Oh, that's a great question. Let me say that the Jewish Jubilee year actually has profound implications for Christianity. In fact, the Jews always believed that the Messiah would come on a Jubilee year. It would be a Jubilee year that they would welcome him as king. In fact, their argument is that Moses gave all of the festivals as rehearsals. Festival in Hebrew actually means rehearsal. And the question is, what rehearsal? Well, at Sinai, they were doing a wedding rehearsal. At Sinai, the Lord betrothed himself to Israel. And so he set up a series of festivals that were rehearsals. And the idea was is that they were to rehearse 
the grand wedding. It'd be like a wedding rehearsal that we even do today when they get everybody together and they say, okay, the bride's going to walk down here and this boy's going to throw flowers here and then we're going to cry here and then the groom will be at the front with the priest or whatever. We do these wedding rehearsals. Well, Jehovah wanted them to be ready for the wedding. And so every year they would rehearse it with their festivals with the idea that every 50 years or the Jubilee, he would come. Now, the reason it was called Jubilee is because that was the day of rejoicing because the groom had arrived. You remember the Lord saying things like, the bride doesn't weep when the bridegroom is with her. She rejoices, and the family rejoices when the bride and the bridegroom are together. So you may remember from the scriptures that one of the Jews said to the Lord that his apostles were too happy and that his people needed to be more miserable. And the Lord said, well, why? The bride doesn't weep when the bridegroom is present, but when the bridegroom leaves, that'll be the time for sorrow. So now that we're together, this isn't the time for sorrow. So it's the same sort of idea. The Jubilee is the time of rejoicing because the bridegroom has come and he's the one that we're waiting for. So that's where, and that's where we get the term Jubilee from. It's also a symbolic thing because the number five, and I know we haven't talked about Jewish numbers yet. We'll do that in some point. If we do another Eastern thinking lesson, numbers would be a useful one. The number five is grace. It's the grace of God. And anytime you add a zero to it, you magnify it. And certainly by timesing it by 10, 10 is the number of witness by trial. So in a sense, 50 is saying in the Jewish way of thinking that the 50th year is the grace that comes from the witnessing of the trial that the people had been through. And that fits actually quite perfectly. There's also another interesting thought that comes. You remember that the Lord made the statement that you are to forgive 70 times 7? You remember someone came up and said to the Lord, how many times am I required to forgive another? Can I forgive them once and then the second time, if they do it again, are they in trouble? And if it's not two, is it 10? When is it okay to say, you keep offending me, and so therefore your chance at forgiveness is over? And the Lord made that really interesting statement where he said, 70 times 7. And everybody looked at him and they understood. Well, it's because it was Jewish. This is Eastern thinking. If you understand 70 times 7 is actually 490, well, you can always drop zeros in Jewish thinking when it comes to understanding symbology. So it's really also the number 49. Well, the idea there was that 49 years you would offend each other, knowing that on the 50th year you were forgiven. So he's talking about the Jubilee, that the people would offend the Lord for 49 years, and then on the 50th year they would be forgiven. And of course, we are to do likewise. We are to forgive everyone until the Lord forgives us all. That's the message that he's trying to say here by that. So now we hope it makes some sense. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the Jubilee. It was always the understanding of the Jewish people that the Lord would come on a Jubilee year. They were waiting for their Messiah to come on a Jubilee year. So the natural extension of that is, did he come on a Jubilee year? And we're going to talk about that in a minute. What does that mean for now? And if he came on a Jubilee year, will his second coming therefore be on a Jubilee year? And the logical answer is yes. 
While we can't say with exactitude the order of events nor the precise timetable of God's end-time plans, we can offer educated speculation since we have the Word of God and we know that He only speaks the truth. It's important whenever you speculate to stop and say, how is it possible to speculate safely? The prophets have warned us about speculation because speculation can lead people astray. What I found in my life and what I use as a guide is I separate my speculation from my testimony. In other words, I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that Joseph Smith was his prophet. I know that the Lord has given his holy word anciently in the Bible and that he has also given his word in our day, both in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the words from the modern prophets. That is my testimony. And so everything else I separate. If I am speculating or thinking something might happen, I don't connect it to my testimony. If it turns out that my speculation is wrong, it doesn't matter because my testimony is still intact. And that would be my advice that I give to anyone that's trying to speculate. Don't allow your speculation to become your testimony. That's when it becomes dangerous. We've been told by the Lord to seek and to answer. And I think sometimes when we're afraid to speculate, we literally shut off our minds. And I don't think that's a bit useful. So whenever we speculate about the second coming, it never fails that somebody at the back of the room raises their hand and says, no man knoweth. Okay, what are they talking about? Well, it does say in Matthew, particularly Matthew 24, 35 and 36, the Lord said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man. But in terms of the second coming, of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Okay, people will often throw that up and say, there's no point in trying to figure it out. All right. Since that scripture, and since it comes from the Lord, that's valid. But the only way we can counter it then is with another scripture and another statement from the Lord. Take a look at what Paul said to the former saints of Thessalonia, 1 Thessalonians 5.1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety— then suddenly destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep, as do others. Let us watch and be sober. Interesting. Paul is saying that it's the world in their slumber that is going to be lost. Those that watch the signs and are awake will see it. Okay, so there's another biblical section that says that, well, his coming will be as a thief in the night. If we're awake and watch the signs, we'll see the thief coming. Fine. Now let's look at Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was talking about the second coming, and he also had the person at the back of the room raising their hand, quoting Matthew at him. And he made a very interesting statement. This is Joseph Smith. He said, Christ says, No man knoweth the day or the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Did Christ speak this as a general principle throughout all generations? Oh, no. He spoke in the present tense. No man that was then living on the footstool of God knew the day or the hour. But he did not say that there was no man throughout all generations that should know the day and the hour. No, for this would be in flat contradiction with other scripture. 
For the prophet Amos says that God will do nothing but what he will reveal unto his servants, the prophets. Consequently, if it is not made known to the prophets, it will not come to pass. Wow. So with that in mind, it's important to remember that the second coming will not happen before the Lord tells his prophet. It's my personal opinion, and it's just speculation, that this is the main purpose for the great conference at Adam on Diamond. But we'll save that because Daniel is the one that talks about this. And you'll note where it falls in the timeline that Daniel gives. It actually works perfectly. But anyway, we're not quite there yet. So let's keep moving forward. I do not have any authority to give out the time of the second coming. I don't know anything any more than anybody else does. And I don't have any privileged information at all. All I can offer is my educated speculation on what I've studied from the ancients, what they believed, and how I think it fits together. So, take it with a grain of salt. This could be totally wrong. I am totally fine with it being totally wrong, because my testimony is not connected to my speculation. Okay, let's talk more about this Jewish idea of the year of Jubilee, and why I think it is crucial for Christians, and why I think it actually is the secret to understanding when the second coming will be, and what the second coming means. We actually have four indications of when the Jubilee year actually is. In my own searching, the first one came from Ezra. While I was working on the book Ezra and the End of Days, I stumbled upon a statement that Ezra was reported to have made, which said that the year 2030, in our reckoning, was of great importance to the Messiah. This is really important because Ezra had seen several visions that used to be in the King James Bible but were removed. And it's worth reading Ezra and the End of Days because it gives you back that information that was pulled out of the King James. It's the only book in the Bible that was in the original King James when it was first given to King James and enjoyed by the people and then was pulled at the next printing. I think if you read it, you'll see why. But anyway... Ezra said 2030 AD, according to our calendar, was a year of great importance. Okay, the next thing I bumped into sometime later was an interesting fragment that had actually come out of Egypt. When some archaeologists were digging in a cemetery, they found a mummy. And when they unwrapped the mummy, they discovered it wasn't human, but it was actually a crocodile. The Egyptians believed that the crocodile god Sobek, at least that's how we think it was pronounced, was the god that protected and watched over Pharaoh. When they opened up the mummy, they discovered that this crocodile had been stuffed with old papyri. And so they opened them up and dug them out. And amongst those old papyri was a fragment of the writings of Hercleon. This greatly excited the Christian community because Hercleon was a name that we know. Hercleon was the disciple of Polycorp. Polycorp was the dear friend and disciple of John the Beloved, the same that wrote the book of Revelation. So here we have Hercleon, who knew Polycorp, who personally knew John. In this fragment, Hercleon said that Polycorp told him that John specifically said to him that the Lord's Jubilee year was the year 30 AD, and that that was the announcement of the opening of the Lord's dispensation, or the fifth seal of John, and that it was the Jubilee year that began the Lord's ministry. Okay, so now that's very interesting. We have the year 30 AD being said by John, via Polycorp, via Hercleon, to be the Jubilee year. Then we have Ezra saying that the year 2030 was a year of extreme importance to the Messiah. 
Very interesting. Both years end in a 30. When you add to that a Latter-day Witness, specifically Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 21, 3, you have the Lord saying that he insists that Joseph Smith open the church on April the 6th, 1830. Again, the 30. Now, if 30 AD is a jubilee year, and you add 50 years up, it means that the next jubilee year would have been 80 AD, and so forth as you move through the 30s and the 50s. Every 50 years you add on. So we get to 1830, and are we understanding that that was actually a jubilee year? It certainly was one for us. It certainly was one for the world. It certainly was one for all the people who had been in spirit prison and all the work that was going to be done to begin the restoration of this wonderful work. Fascinating. So if you take 1830 and you continue to add these jubilee years to it, you bump into 2030. Four jubilees. Four in Jewish thinking is the number of the fallen world. So we have four jubilees or a fallen world until the year 2030. Anyway, to make the answer short, I actually think that we're going to see the second coming in the year 2030. And if we continue to follow the Jewish tradition and we follow the Jewish festivals and rehearsals, because they seem to still be playing a part in all of this, I think we can expect the Lord to come sometime in the fall of 2030. That's a speculation. I wouldn't go sell all my stocks and live in a muddy tent by the Great Salt Lake because Reed said so. We'll have to wait and see. I'll sure have egg on my face for saying this publicly, I guess, but... I believe that the second coming will be in the fall of 2030. We'll just have to wait and see. But I offer it because you ask. Okay, next, we have a question from Maria of Plainsville, Texas. She has asked, when did the division of Pangaea occur? Oh, that is a good question. Boy, this one's going to get me in trouble with some geologists. I actually addressed this in some detail in Volume 8, Genesis and the Everlasting Covenant. The only spot in the Bible that suggests that there could actually have been a division of the continents the way the geologists like to push today comes in Genesis with the discussion of Peleg and the land dividing. But it actually doesn't mean that, and it actually never happened. Uh, The proof that I have that there never was a Pangaea and a Gondwana land, I think, is the other one. They will show you the coastlines of the continents, and they'll say, see how they line up? But it's actually very disingenuous. Get yourself a map and don't look at the ocean shore, but look at the actual continental shelf. You can find maps of the actual continental shelf. What happens is there's this shelf to the continents that the water hits up against, and it's usually where the coral is and the little fishies and stuff. And if you go past the continental shelf, it drops into the deep abyss, and that's where the continent actually ends. So if you look at the continental shelves and you try and do this whole Gondwana land, Pangaea garbage, you'll see it does not work. It does not work. And that's because it never happened. The idea of the continental shelf had to come into place because of continental drift, because of Darwinism. When it was discovered that some of the continents actually move a little bit and that the whole earth has to be a gazillion years old, that meant that they had to have moved during that time frame some direction. And so they came up with this whole continental drift thing. It it never happened that way. What Peleg is actually saying is that before the water rose to the level of the current shoreline, it was actually at the Great Abyss. And this is actually what the Bible is saying. Anyway, after the flood, the Lord introduced more water 
into the oceans, and that raised the shoreline from the edge of the great abyss onto the shore. And archaeologists will tell you that there are a lot of ruins of ancient civilizations, some incredibly complex ones. My favorite is off the coast of Japan. You might want to look that up. But there used to be civilizations that lived on the continental shelf that is now underwater on the shoreline. So we know that people lived there. But if you actually remove the water back to the edge of the continental shelf, you literally can walk on every single continent of the earth. You can walk by land anywhere you wish in the earth following the original line. What happened after Peleg is that the water rose and that's what separated the continents and it divided them. The Lord did that on purpose because he needed to separate the new world from the old world for some of his plans. Also in full disclosure, the division mentioned in the days of Peleg actually refers to the division of the earth by the tribes under Noah. When the Lord commanded men to spread out over the earth, Noah, in order to give it some legal claim, drew lots, and the three brothers actually picked a lot, and therefore picked the land that they were going to inherit for their children through all time. And so that was the actual dividing that's being talked about. But it's also true that as the water started to normalize and that the Lord raised the mountains, that the continental shelf also was submerged. And that's what divided the land and the water in that sense. This whole thing ties into Jewish mythology, and we could talk about that in great depth. But I think this will suffice, and the mythology side of it kind of borders on boring, probably in our scientific minds today. So I know I didn't make any friends with geologists today, but there never was a Pangea land. Okay, here's a question. Daniel from Shelley, Idaho asks, Did rabbis actually forbid their students from studying the book of Daniel to learn its timelines? That's a really timely question. In fact, it's exactly what we're talking about in the last episode, so thank you so much. I think my favorite one comes from the great Mamadides. And as you know, I'm a great fan of the rabbis. They were extremely intelligent men. The problem was is that their ancestors, particularly in the time of Mamadides, had said that Christianity was wrong and that Jesus' disciples, and of course his early disciples were all Jewish, had actually snuck his body out of the tomb and then claimed that he had resurrected. Now, of course, we Christians don't believe that at all. And there are, in the Bible, 500 eyewitnesses who saw the Lord raised. But you have to realize, too, that the more powerful elite of the Jewish people who had made their lives based on their culture and controlling their culture didn't want to let it go. And to a large part, these were the Sadducees. Most of the converts to Christianity were either the common people or the Pharisees. So as the Jewish nation merged into the European and Christian communities, which they had to do after the destruction of Jerusalem ultimately, they were discovering that their young were joining the Christian church, either because they believed it or because of peer pressure, or in part because they just wanted to get on with their lives and join the community and not necessarily be the hiss and the byword that their people were becoming, sadly. Let me quote Mamadides as one of the ones who tried to do all he could to shore up the Jewish culture as it was falling apart in these days. Mamadides was born in 1135 AD and is probably best known for his work The Mishnah Torah and The Guide for the Perplexed, both of which were trying to help shore up Judaism in medieval Christianity when it was so hard to practice in those days. We owe him a great deal for preserving information, as we owe all the rabbis. He made this interesting statement. Our sages declared 
May the spirits of those who attempt to calculate the time of the Messiah's coming die. Then he would go on to explain, Daniel has clarified for us the secret of the end times. Our wise men have forbidden the calculation of the days of the Messiah's appearance so that the masses will not be confused into thinking that the time has passed. He was most likely quoting Rabbi Judah, who in the Babylonian Talmud, which is about 189 AD, said, The times of Daniel's 70-week prophecies were over long ago. All the time limits for the redemption of the Messiah have passed. Oh, wow. But perhaps the Jewish historian Josephus best expressed the confusion and willful ignorance over Jesus and Daniel when he wrote in his history of the Jewish people. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of the Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Ultimately, since it had been Israel's task under Moses to keep the calendar, what started to happen under secularism, and certainly because of fears that men like Mamadides had, they shifted the ancient calendar, in some cases 500 years off, to move the prophecies away from Jesus. In doing so, what they ultimately did is they destroyed much of the originality, creativity, and brilliance of what Jehovah had done for the people. By moving the calendar, they actually slid Moses down to about the times of Achnaton. And in doing so, they believed that Moses stole the Jewish religion from Achnaton. This is absolutely wrong. Moses precedes Achnaton by about 500 years and was actually part of the Old Kingdom and was part of the beginning of the religious revolution as the secularists see it, not copycats of another one. They prefer the move because it marginalizes the Bible. Anyway, that's a long discussion. But yes, great rabbis have said that the time has passed, and other historians, even Jewish ones, have said that they believe that Jesus was the Messiah promised by Daniel. So today, they are waiting for the restoration, and we can get into a discussion of that. The ancient Jews also understood that if they had lost the Messiah, son of David, that God would give them one more chance and one more restoration under a Messiah, son of Joseph, and that that would lead up to the return and the second coming. There's a bunch of confusion today between the Messiah, Ben Joseph, and the Messiah, Ben Judah, and how they fit together. We will discuss all of that in a future feast. There is actually lengthy discussion in these things in our Genesis series, particularly volume 10, Genesis and the Messiah, Ben Joseph. But I wouldn't jump to that book. I would start with Daniel and move through the series. Like I've said, it builds on each other. All right. Okay. Well, Reed, we are again out of time. So everyone, please send in your questions. Uh, You can send them through the website, gospelfeastbooks.com, or you can send them directly at an email address, gospelfeastbooks at gmail.com. You know, here's your chance to actually try to stump our author. You know, what is it you've always wanted to know, uh, but didn't know who to ask or, or even where to ask? Now, 
We just want to say uh, for everyone that our podcasts aren't reviewed and commissioned or endorsed by any religion. This is our opinion and our comments only. We thank everyone for listening, and until our next Gospel Feast, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Music